podcast is sponsored today by Creative Bug. Go to creativebug.com to check out the best in online arts and crafts instruction and learn from top designers, many of whom I've had on this show. A premium membership is just $4.95 each month, and Creative Bug is giving my listeners a free month to give the classes a try. Just use the code NAPS, N-A-P-S, NAPS, at checkout and get started today. Thanks, Creative Bug. Welcome to episode 49 of the Walsh Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about ceramics with my guest, Diana Faith. Diana is a modern-day scrim shander whose chosen medium is clay rather than whalebone. Drawing on her background as a painter, sculptor, printmaker, and clayer, Diana's clay surfaces are alive with strange and exotic stories, part folklore and part personal narrative. Her work can be found in a myriad of public and private art collections, both in the United States and abroad. A graduate of the California College of the Arts, she currently lives and works in the Sierra Nevada foothills of California with a dog named Louie and an ever-growing collection of fine art and found ephemera. Diana Fate, welcome. Hi, Abby. It's great to be here. It's so great to have you on the show. And we met in person at Craftcation um, last month, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great. I love the event. I was so it was so um, great to meet all these people that I've been reading about and following for years. And oh, totally. It, yeah, you came up to me and you're like, "I'm Diana Fate." I'm like, "Ah, <laughs> so great to see you in person." So yeah, it was a highlight for sure. Um, so I I have to tell you, I love the word scrimshander. When I was writing the little bio last night, I was like, "That's the best word." So I know you associate uh, your technique of carving into the surface of clay and drawing on it with Scrimshaw. And I just wondered if you could explain what is Scrimshaw and how did you come up with this approach of using something similar to Scrimshaw in your own work? I do think of myself as a Scrimshander, which is a fabulous word. And um, But originally, when I had started making my work, um, I had uh, a background in printmaking as well as ceramics. And I was in love with the etching process, dry point etching process. And when I graduated from school, uh, I was met with um, the reality of working and trying to create an art practice. And I have a lot of interests and I do a lot of different types. I like to work in a lot of different types of mediums. And I needed to create a process in clay, or I was looking for a process in clay, one, to sort of express what I wanted to express um, in my work, but also that um, embraced all of these things that I'd love to do. And so I started uh, thinking about my ceramic pieces as etching plates and um, applying the things that you do in etching etching process, dry point etching specifically, to a ceramic surface. And I came up with um, the process that I am using today, still today. And that was 20 years ago. And then about um, 10 years ago, I was traveling a lot to a um, small Caribbean island where there was a tradition of uh, scrimshaw still being um, practiced. And I um, noticed the correlation between my my process that I was calling etching in clay and scrimshaw, and um, I also 
felt the, a deep connection to the fact that the uh, scrimshaw was a way of storytelling and that it was a humble art. It was, and also used the materials, um, the, the sailors would use the materials that they had on hand when they were whaling, which was whalebone. Um, and they would etch, you know, stories or images for their sweethearts or about their sweethearts. And a lot of these objects would be sold in ports um, as they would sail around to also make money and um, to send home as gifts. And so I just, I loved all of that. And it just really spoke to me and it really um, felt, uh, I felt a deep connection to that with my own work and what I had been doing already with my work. So I sort of adopted, I kind of embraced that as well and brought that into my practice. And then actually, wanted to try and make my work look like scrimshaw work. So I started working on a, on a different clay body and eliminating um, the color and using just a black and white palette um, and came up with a process that is pretty close to scrimshaw. Um, and I'm using that. I still do the etching in clay, um, but they are a little bit diff- two different processes, but um, they read relatively uh, pretty much the same without one with color and one without color and the, um, one without color, I hope, translates as looking like Scrimshaw. Yeah, I definitely think it does. And um, were you influenced by the imagery of like traditional Scrimshaw, too, when you were traveling to the Caribbean? You know, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I can look at that for hours. I love all of that imagery, but I... I tend to like to create my own vocabulary with imagery. So I'm constantly um, researching and drawing and and coming up with um, different types of images that I can use as my own little visual dictionary on my work because I am trying to tell my own story. So um, I I am really intrigued by the imagery. However, I don't, um, I I actually work hard to not mimic it directly. I want my uh, work to look more modern and um, timely. I want it to tell a story of now as opposed to something that I want it to sort of touch, have that feeling of touching the past and having that link, but I don't necessarily want it to look like something out of the past. Okay. Right. So, and I know that there are certain images. I own several of your pieces and I've also bought them for friends and, um, and then looked at them all online for years and years. And there are certain images that sort of reappear, um, over time. And like you said, they're part of your vocabulary. They're almost like, you know, your favorite words or (laughs) something like that. So that you use to tell your story. So what are, what are some of those that come to mind that are your, you know, most favorite ones or the most repeated ones, signature ones? Well, I would say that the rabbit, um, uh, is probably there's the rabbit and then there's the bird. Um, it's a wren, which I used for a long time as my, um, logo insignia. I, when I first, I had a blog, um, that I started in 2006 back when we all started blogs, um, called one black bird. And that was, that was sort of the start of using the, um, silhouetted imagery in my work, but I'd say the one that I'm the most attached to that is, um, the most, um, of a, of a, um, uh, self-portrait is the, is the rabbit and that the rabbit is definitely me, um, through moving through my work and having conversations, you know, with the world or with my own, um, with my own thoughts, um, or trying to tell a story. So those are those two, I'd say the bird and the, um, 
rabbit are the two probably most recognizable images in my work. I use a lot of different, um, um, always animal imagery for the silhouetted imagery. I have um, seahorses and uh, whales and um, I've used squids and I'm trying to think of all of them now. Um, and lately I've been using a lot of feathers in my work <clears throat> in the last few years. And, um, that one has also, um, become kind of a signature, um, image for me as well. And that one's more about my own personal spiritual journey, um, uh, that I like to, to put into my work as well. Right. Okay. Um, and I feel like, um, you know, clay, Clay is like the most humble thing ever. And you touched on the humbleness of the materials that scrimshanders use. And I mean, there's nothing more humble than clay because really it's dirt, you know, it's like the most raw of raw material. And I feel like, um, I mean, I, I'm not somebody who makes a lot of ceramics besides, you know, high school art classes and that sort of thing. So I, I'm not super familiar with the process, but I do know that there's um, a lot of stages and some of them are really physical. You know, there's some parts of it that really require almost like a workout to, um, to get the clay into shape. And I just wondered about those steps and um, whether you sort of look forward to all of them, love all of them, or um, feel like there's something special about moving through the stages of, you know, creating something from clay. Yeah. You know, the steps in creating a piece, uh, in ceramics are sometimes are daunting. And I think, um, but I also, I have to say that I do really enjoy each, um, stage and each transition. And in a way, um, it creates diversity in working with the medium because you'll start with your block of clay and, um, with an idea and then, having to work it into a form. And, um, I use molds, um, that I make myself to start for for, with base form. So I'm a hand builder. And, um, and then, you know, that part of it is really satisfying. I actually sometimes can get really obsessive about making just the forms. Um, and I have to be careful not to make too many because I have a, a space of time that I need to work on the surface before they dry out. So, um, I have to sometimes stop myself at that point. But then there's, um, if I'm laying on color, that part, and then, and that's a whole nother, um, uh, different, different activity. That's really enjoyable. Um, that part takes a lot of time actually is laying down the color and then, um, planning the designs and then finally doing the actual drawings on them, um, which is, uh, very kind of solitary and quiet and, um, I'm holding my head in the same position for a really long time looking at work. Um, so, um, and then, um, the finishing, which is, uh, firing. And then I have a whole nother, um, bunch of steps at the end, um, to, to finish off the pieces and glaze them and get them back in the kiln. And, um, yeah, it's really physically, um, can be really physically challenging. Um, a lot of, um, of us who work in ceramics have back issues. And I think the back issues, a lot of it comes from loading kilns because you're loading into these strange spaces and bending over, um, holding heavy objects and dropping them down. I mean, that's how I'm always throwing out my back is usually when I load my kiln and stress. <laughs> stress will do it too. <laughs> yeah. So, and so I'm, I'm imagining you're working on like a pretty big batch at once. So you're not just doing one piece and taking it through those stages. You're working on like how many in a batch? Ooh, well, um, it depends on what projects I'm working 
um, on when I was making and producing work for Heath Ceramics, I would was making 200 one of a kind pieces for them. So that was a, a lot of work. Some of them were, um, were small pieces, small vases, which you can fit quite a few in a in a in, in a you know in a normal or an average size kiln. Um, uh, which most of people who are working professionally in ceramics have. Um, and, um, but it just depends. And it also depends on the size of the work. So if you're making larger work, it's kind of, it's kiln uh, capacity, the space that's available to you, which will kind of decide what, how many pieces you're working on. But I tend to work, um, on, um, quite a few pieces at once, usually about, mm, well, it just depends on the pieces, but I'd say between five to 15 pieces at a time. Okay. Yeah. So like a batch. Um, <laughs> and I, this is a totally random and bizarre question, but um, like kilns are incredibly hot. So when you, and I, I'm just wondering, do you need like a special insurance to have a kiln? I mean, how, how does that work? <laughs> I know that's really random, but like that, I'm like, you know, if you bought a kiln, right, the chances that you could start a fire are kind of high. Well, that's a great question, actually. I'm really <laughs> glad you asked it because um, I get a lot of uh, funny kiln questions. And um, I always kind of smile and wonder, why are people asking me this? But it is um, uh, a, a curiosity for a lot of folks. Um, you know, the electric kilns are incredibly safe. They're as safe as your oven. Um, you do have to have uh, um, them, you know, your wiring um put in according to the specifications of the kiln, but they're not gas kilns. They're not shooting out flames. They're insulated. And, you know, they're, they're, you have to take care in how you set them up and where you set them up. Um, and there are um, things that you have to keep in, you know, keep in mind when you do it. But a lot of people have kilns in their homes. And, they, you know, the biggest issue, um, more than the heat, is the... Um, emission of gases from your, from, from firing, from firing your work because the clay and during glaze firing. And if you do any kind of lusters or China paints, um, those can emit toxic fumes. So you need to make sure your kiln is well ventilated, which actually I think is one of, um, the biggest concerns, um, with, with, with ceramics, but they're not dangerous. I mean, if they're set up properly, they're not dangerous at all. Um, you just have to make sure that they're set up on a, in a safe area. Okay. Uh, see, um, I'm glad I asked that question because I can't be the only person who is like, Hmm, this seems like something you would need super specialized equipment for. And so like the barrier to entry seems high. Yeah, it's mostly the cost for the kiln. It's the barrier for the yeah. Entry. How much does a kiln cost? I mean, just out of curiosity, that must be oh god, I would incredible not. expense, right? I mean, maybe I, you haven't bought one in a long time. Yeah, I mean, most of us, you know, we buy one, take care of it, and try and use it for twenty, at least twenty years, okay, if not longer. Right. Um, there are some kilns that are floating around there for a long time, but if they're well taken care of, but. Um, now that I'm talking about electric kiln, a gas kiln, which is a, t- a totally different way of working in ceramics, which are the ones that have the flames, you know, use flames, and there are wood kilns and all different kinds of kilns out there, and they do require different kinds of um, <clears throat> environments to set them up in and different kinds of permits. Um, I can say for a lot of ceramic artists. Uh, I was working, I just moved away from San Francisco and a lot of ceramic artists had a difficult time finding spaces to work in, in the city, because you say you have a kiln and people just automatically think they're flamethrowers. Right. 
simply. Right, totally. And convincing them otherwise was it's hard. Difficult, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's like some consumer public education needing to happen there between ceramic artists and just the general public around the safety of kilns. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so, um, you know, I feel like um, looking at your uh, career as an artist, you had kind of part one and part two, and you can correct me if you if you think I'm wrong, but there was sort of part one where you were working other jobs, you know, you were not just a full-time artist, you were waiting tables and were, um, teaching, uh, as well as working on your art. And then, and you were a little bit more like your art was a little more private, a little more squirreled away during that time, maybe. And then there was part two where you are now and, um, you're sort of, you know, uh, teaching online and are kind of more interacting with everybody and, um, bringing people in. And I, I wondered sort of what happened between part one and, and that caused part two to occur. Well, I've been, um, I started making, I graduated from school in 1992 and, um, right out of school, actually the last year of, um, my, when I was in school, I, did an internship at the Richmond Art Center in um, Richmond, California, and um, was interested in teaching, uh, teaching art. So I took on this inter- uh, took on an internship, and I was working um, in various. I was following. I was shadowing another artist and um, working as their assistants, um, helping them teach children in these um, programs for <clears throat> school children. And uh, then after I graduated. I, um, you know, I, I was faced with that question. What am I going to do with this art degree? I was an, I was an older student. I went back to school when I was 24 and finished when I was 27. So I had been, I actually put myself through school waiting tables. Um, and I had a job, but I really wanted to use my degree. It was really important to me. I mean, it was, a something that I thought long and hard about before I went into school and, um, as far as I was concerned, it wasn't a frivolous idea and it was going to, I wanted it to be a career, but I didn't really, um, you know, you don't get out of school and say, there are people like go over here for your art job, you know? (laughs) So, um, I actually got really, really, really sick. Um, uh, after I graduated with a horrible cold, I was laid up in bed for, um, for a week and in my fever uh, I at that moment when I was really sick I thought I'm going to go back and volunteer again even though um, I'll have to do it for free at the art center the Richmond Art Center started volunteering there and they um, hired after a couple of months they started hiring me for jobs and I was just a yes person I anytime they would call me at the last minute someone was sick or couldn't make it or didn't show up to teach these programs I would be like I'm there and I was um I would do that, and I was going into a lot of the um, inner city schools, working, teaching printmaking, all different kinds of things. And so I was actually being employed as an artist, and um, and then I was trying to also create work on my own work and create an art practice on my own. Um, and um, then I, I didn't really know what I was going to be doing with ceramics, uh, then I was offered uh, a teaching, a ceramics class to teach at the art center, and I taught that. And during that time, I had kind of touched on my on the process, um, the etching in clay process, 
Um, and I was having, um, I wasn't comfortable teaching adults, um, ceramics. I, I found it really, um, uh, scary and, and I just felt like I didn't have a lot of experience. Um, I didn't have enough own personal experience with the medium under my own, um, belt the time to feel like I, I, I was, um, justified in teaching people. I, I just wasn't, I didn't have the confidence yet. So, um, I found it to be a really draining experience, but I, so I decided to stop teaching and just focus on my own work. And I also felt like at the time I was teaching people the things that I actually wanted to be doing myself. Yeah. So I, I went back in and, um, and I just uh, started working on my own work for about 14 years. So this was in the mid nineties. I had a pretty immediate response to my work and I was being offered shows and doing it the old fashioned way with um, sending out slides and doing some craft fairs and um, local shows. And uh, I was entering contests and winning those things. Um, so I actually, and you know, I was, I had to keep waiting tables to, to pay my bills. Plus I was also not, there wasn't um, an art scene or a, a way to make a living as an artist like there is now. There wasn't Etsy. There wasn't any of that. So um, it was kind of necessary to have another job. Plus, I had health insurance and all of those things through my work. Um, and then um, I turned 40, and this was right around the I – I left – um, San Francisco for a year and I lived on the East coast. Um, and at that time I decided I was going to make a break from waiting tables. I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and, uh, make a go of it with my work. Um, I also had previously before, right before I had, um, in from 1999 to 2002, I had worked with a company designing uh, tabletop ceramics that were made and produced in Hungary. Um, the company is no longer in business, um, but um, I got a taste of designing at the time as well. So and working with um, hands-on with a factory in Hungary. <clears throat> so by 2005. When I was retired and I was living on the East Coast, um, I became friends. Um, actually, we, Lisa Congan had posted something of mine on, on her then very popular blog, um, A Bird in the Hand, and I got all these hits on my my um, website, and I wrote her a quick thank you note um, for mentioning me. And I didn't really know what blogs were and all. And I mean, I knew what they were, but I didn't know artists were writing them at the time. And I started to read hers and I asked her some advice and she was really gracious in writing me. And, um, you know, we were like, we want to meet each other. And so, um, 2006, I started, I I think I started the blog in late 2005, but didn't actually start writing till 2006. And, um, at the time there weren't a lot of ceramic blogs. Um, I think there were about four or five that I could find. And, um, uh, that kind of put me on the map, um, in the whole, in, in the whole realm of not just ceramics, but with all the other folks out there who were blogging about their creative endeavors. And I felt like I became embraced in that community. And that really helped a lot. That sort of transitioned, uh, me into being self-employed. And, um, I was able to, I just started, you know, basically following the breadcrumbs and, you know, I signed on to Etsy and started selling through Etsy and, um, in the early days and just doing all of that. And, um, 
one thing led to another. So that's, that's how I kind of, it was part one and part two. I was actually an active showing artist pre-internet, but, um, a lot of folks, I think out there, um, especially young people don't know that there was a, a, another way to, to show and sell your work before the internet, um, or that you weren't even, you didn't even exist before the internet. So yeah. Yeah. You experienced being a working artist both before the internet and the way it's structured now and during it and in it, you know, like now you, you have a really active Instagram following, for example. So you, you know, you sort of ridden the whole wave, um, you know, just from the time you graduated from college until now, you know, so that's really interesting. And I just also wanted to mention that, um, Lisa, I had a very uh, similar Lisa Condon experience. Um, so when I, uh, I started blogging at the same time that you did and, um, was making things and asked and asked her for some advice. And she told me to make more birds that if I wanted to <laughs> keep going and take the, be taken seriously, I should make more birds. And I totally took her advice to heart and spent two and a half years making birds. And it led to my first book deal. So I always am like, oh, you know, Lisa was so, it was just really generous of her to sort of look at what I had and help me figure out what to do next. So yeah, she's, you know, um, I'm lucky to call her one of my best friends. Um, and, um, and I, you know, we're, we've become really good friends over the, over the last 10 years since that, those initial, you know, since she was, she, she had actually posted my work. I didn't know who she was and I wrote her back and she, you know, we, we developed a friendship from there, but she really helped me. I mean, I remember writing her in 2005 and saying, what should this blog look like? What should it be? And she, she, you know, she wrote me back. She was already popular then. Um, and working full time. And she took the time to write me back and give me, um, a few tips on it. And then I was, you know, I was off and running and, um, but she's just generous in the community in general that way with everyone. She writes about everyone and she's just, she's great. I love (laughs) Hey, Lisa. Um, Also past guest on Walsh and Epps podcast, but anyway. (laughs) Um, So, okay. So I want to return back a little bit um, to sort of where you are now when it comes to to Clay. And I know that I've heard you say before um, that there just are a lot of possibilities to have a career as a ceramicist and that you shouldn't sort of feel too precious or too limited in what you're, you know, what you're doing and not, um, be afraid to diversify and experiment and add new income streams to, um, to your work and, um, you know, to help, help you be sustainable as an artist and generate a real income. Um, and I wanted to to talk on that and, and we can also get into your online teaching, but first let's just say, what are, what are some of your income streams now? So, um, right now I, I have an online e-course called, I have two of them, um, under my, um, e-course name called the, the Clayer. And, um, I also, um, teach, um, I work with creative bug. I have some, uh, classes on the creative bug, um, website. Um, I make and I make my own one of a kind work. Um, I also have, um, a sideline, thing that I make called globals, which are, um, long hanging tea light holders, which if you saw them, you wouldn't necessarily know it was me that was making them because they're plain and white. Um, and, um, 
I also do design projects. I um, have designed for anthropology last year. I had a collection come out um, with them, and then there's some um, more coming out this autumn. Um, and I'm trying to think. I do some other side things. I've designed logos and things. Uh, for I just designed a logo for a, a local um, store um, that's um, reopening. They moved um, in here in Nevada City where I live. So, um, and then I teach. Um, face-to-face workshops um, in ceramics, and I've traveled around to different um, parts of the world, actually. I've been to Australia and uh, all over the country teaching workshops, um, hands-on longer workshops to other ceramic artists, and trying to think. I know there's stuff I'm forgetting, but that's pretty much... um, so that's, that was already um, like seven different things. So I just, I just think it's important to kind of draw attention to that, that in order to make this work and um, both for you to stay happy and also for this to be sustainable as a job, you have to sort of pull in all of these different things. That's not to say you have to say yes to everything because I'm sure that things come by that you're like, no, I don't think that's the right opportunity for me. Um, but you do have to be creative and say yes to a lot of different things. And, and there's gotta be some hustle in there as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that the one thing that, you know, um, age and being at this for so long is, um, I've learned to pace myself. Um, I think it's really normal and natural when you're young to be, you know, saying yes to everything and wanting to do everything and overwhelming yourself. I actually think you have more energy to do that to yourself. Um, and, um, I have gotten to a place now in my, um, career where I only want to be working on things that, um, I'm going to, can be focused on and I'm going to be enjoy, uh, that I'm going to enjoy, um, and that I'm going to, that I feel like, uh, uh, I want to invest my time in and that it's going to be uh, a satisfying um, experience for me. I mean, it's hard to tell that from the outset with any project, but if it's not going to be that, then I, I don't want to do it because I've taken on, you know, I've said yes to a lot of things at once and been miserable. Um, so I think, you know, learning to pace yourself, learning what your capacity is and, um, taking downtime too, and, and respecting that, um, as well, because, um, you know, I, I think of myself as a very creative person with a lot of ideas, but, um, there are times I just, I, I don't, I can't, even when I'm there, I have blank spaces, so I, I, I can't do it constantly and I need to, um, regenerate and I try and honor that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point too. I wanted to take a quick break here to highlight a few classes that are available now on creative bug. I had Rebecca Rinquist on the show a few weeks ago, and I'm going to be taking her creative bug classes this summer. And I'm really looking forward to it. She has one, um, which is on the basic drop cloth sampler where she demonstrates all the different kinds of really useful embroidery stitches like backstitch and running stitch and French knots. And in the process, you make this gorgeous sampler. I made one last summer that I love, but I'm really excited to take her advanced sampler class now. She shows you all these really neat stitches that are three-dimensional, like turkey work, and you make another awesome embroidered piece, which I'm planning to hang next to my first one. I think having access to Rebecca's workshops and to the workshops of so many 
other wonderful artists and crafters, including Lisa Congdon, Natalie Channon, Liesl Gibson, Cal Patch, and so many more right from your own home is just totally fantastic. So I hope you'll try a free month. You get access to every single class on the platform, so you can watch as much or as little as you want. Just go to creativebug.com, use the code NAPS. N-A-P-S at checkout, and you'll be supporting this podcast at the same time. So thank you so much. And now back to my talk with Diana. Um, and I want to talk about the Clayer because this, this is an online class that you made or two of them really now that you, that you made yourself. Um, and I, I wondered how you got the idea to make an online class. And then I also wanted to know more about the nuts and bolts of how you actually made it. Like, did you take an online class from somebody and sort of see how it was structured and then model yours that way? Um, did you have to hire some people to help you with it? So first, um, so how did you come up with this idea that you could be an online class maker? Well, um, it's kind of an answer that some of your previous podcasters have already talked about. And um, the magic word is squam. <laughs> I taught it. <laughs> also, also a prior Walshie Naps podcast guest. Yes, squam's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, so I taught at Squam in um, 2010 and 2011. And when I was there in 2011, I was bunking with a bunch of fellow artists and um, Misty Mon was um, part of our group. And um, all of them, a few of them were talking about teaching their online classes um, and they were in painting. And um, my wheels started, the wheels of my head started turning as they were talking about them. And I thought, I, I could do this in ceramics. And I was like, can I do this in ceramics? And, you know, and they were like, yes, you can do it. You should do it. No one was doing it in clay. Um, clay, um, the community can be, um, a little bit, um, antiquated and they're thinking sometimes about ways to learn. Um, and, um, I think that they're, they're the last to kind of get on the line, the ceramics community, um, and um, there's a lot of you have to do it hands-on. You have to teach someone face-to-face. And I thought, no, I don't think so. And Misty was really, I'd never taken an online course before. And Misty was really generous and um, sent me the passwords to the current course she was teaching. And I she's, think, a, she's a mixed-media artist, I think. Yeah, primarily painting and drawing. Okay. Okay. Yeah, she's beautiful work. Yeah. And... Um, <clears throat> She also does ceramics too. She was a potter and then she had retired and went, to, yeah. So, um, and she, um, let me look at her course structure and I just looked at it and with my past experience teaching, I, um, I knew how I would, and I understanding ceramics, I knew how I would need to put it together, which was very different than what she was doing, but it gave me a sort of a, you know, just a structure to sort of look at. And then, <clears throat> I had some other friends um, teaching online courses in the Bay Area, and they had people to help them with the back-end work, um, and they gave me their <clears throat> those folks' names. So I got some help to set up the um, platform, and when I started my e-courses, I was using, I think, five different platforms between a type pad as a blog um, 
which was the actual class platform, Facebook, Flickr, and then the backend stuff, Vimeo, um, for my, my, my video tutorials. And, um, and then you have to use some other weird e-junky thing for the paying for the payment system and tracking, um, the students and then PayPal. So that's six, I think six that you're using. Um, uh, so, and then I hired a videographer to, um, videotape, um, the tutorials and then I did all the written part of it and structure and then, um, moderating the class, um, there's six week, um, guided classes. So I'm present during the, the e-courses and, um, having discussions with, with the students, but I changed platforms last year and it's just been a godsend. And I'm on one platform now called the host is Rizuku and, um, they've been great. And I've been able to do all the things that I was using Facebook and Flickr and all of that stuff all in one place. And so it makes for a much more intimate classroom online classroom experience. And, um, I, as a, as the instructor, I feel like I can engage with my students much more directly than I was able to before. It was just overwhelming before, but, yeah, um, it sounds like it's so, so I'm interested in Rizuka cause I think that's a great tip for people. And I wondered, um, so the, so the students after, so they, they pay, um, and does Rizuka help you handle and track the payments? Uh, well, they have different options um, depending on what your needs are. Um, you can do it all. You can. It can be like one-stop shopping for okay. your own course. Absolutely, that is an option. It's not what I'm using, but um, you can do it that way. You totally can do it that way, and there, it's a really. I think it's a really. You know, the barrier to entry is very minimal. Um, uh, you know, you have to. You have to be willing to sit in front of your computer and figure it out. Sure. Um, there's a lot to it. And they have a ton of support and, and, um, other instructors inside the, once you get into the community of other instructors, they, some of them offer free courses on how to videotape your course. Right. And, like, that's <laughs> All the stuff. So, right. So then once the students logged in, is there like, um, a chat forum kind of thing? Like, how do you, I know you said you're, present during the course or do you say okay we're going to meet on Wednesdays at three or I mean how do you do that part well you can do live um live chats although I don't do that because I have an international student body so it's really hard for me to get a time where I can do that um so what I do is I just let them know based on my time zone when I'm going to be in front of my computer for an hour for you know three to four days a week. So if they have an immediate burning question that they need me to answer, they know I'll be there then. But they basically, there's a discussion forum um, that they can um, type their questions in. And I um, see that and I can respond directly to their questions. Um, you know, I have to, I have to kind of um, put boundaries on it. I am not in front of my computer twenty four seven, and it is a as a, I, I think of it as a sort of a a course that you like if you were going to a college and you were taking a course. So there are office hours of when I'll be available and when I'm not, and I make sure that I let everybody know that. But I also try to be available as much as possible. Um, to answer people's questions. Plus it's just a lot of fun. You know, it's fun to talk to my students and watch them and, um, really interesting conversations happen, um, inside the, the classroom walls. And, um, I think it's such a great, um, way for people to learn, especially if they're feeling kind of shaky about what they're doing, because, um, 
you know, I, I've set up my courses to be a, a supportive environment. So there's no critiquing or, um, any, no harsh comments are allowed or anything like that. So I want people to feel safe to try things. And ceramics are often disastrous, especially when <laughs> new. And, you know, it's hard to make something look nice um, right away. So it's, you know, it's about, and, and the way I teach and the way I, I'm sort of teaching people the way I think, which is, um, you know, it's, it's process-oriented, but it's also building narratives and things like that. So I try to get into that part of it, um, as much so that people kind of develop a philosophy because I'm trying to kind of communicate, let's putting soul into, into, into the work as well as technique. Right. And we should probably just mention what the, what the classes are. These are not super beginning, you know, how to, to do basic hand building classes. This is more, um, all around surface treatment. Is that right? Correct. Um, I do think ceramics, any, like if you're beginning, uh, beginners, beginning in ceramics, you should take a hands-on, you know, go to, go to a community center, go to a school and learn the basics in ceramics. Um, so these are intermediate, advanced intermediate courses. You need to have basic skills. I mean, you can come in with not a ton of experience, but you just need to understand the um, terminology because I don't spend time explaining it, um, uh, I just assume that that the students know that, or if they don't know it, they know how to find out what that is. Um, not they can ask each other those things, but that's not. I don't spend time teaching basic skills, um, <clears throat> and um, and they are um, the first one's called surfacing, and it um, it uh, encompasses uh, surface techniques and some hand building techniques. I always um, introduce. Uh, um, uh, something that we're going to be working on. So I teach the technique on how to make the thing that we're working on. And the one that um, uh, is coming up now, the um, it was called the part two series, but it really isn't a part two series. It's just a different class. It's called um, surface patterns and molds. And I'm teaching how to make um, basic, very basic ceramic um, uh, drape molds. And also, and then we start, from that place, we build a piece, a multi, uh, uh, a piece that has, uh, different sections and different types of surface designs applied and carving out molds and stenciling and things like that. But we basically start from the, a beginning space and by the end spot and by the end of the class, you have a finished piece using all the techniques that, um, you've learned in the class. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in order to participate, um, you know, you do need to have access to a ceramic studio of some kind, a kiln and a space to work. You know, this is going to be for people who are sort of already there, you know, already in it. You, that, you're going to have a, a better experience if you can, you know, move, you know, come along with the class. However, I do think someone could take this class who doesn't have, um, access to kilns and all of that. You can learn from these, um, from the class, even if you're not doing it. Um, uh, and the classes stay up for a year. So some people sometimes sign up for them or six months, excuse me, six months after. So some people start and know that they can't quite, um, do, you know, participate during the guided period, but all of that information is still up and you can see all the video tutorials and you still have access to the, um, 
student forums. So if you want to ask questions, you can go in and, and ask questions so you're not kind of left completely hanging. And students can show pictures of what they're working on, I'm assuming, within the forums. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Up, they can upload pictures. Right. And I'm, can, I'm a... Um, my plan this year is to um, uh, create a website just for the Claire, and I want to have a student gallery because there's been some amazing. Oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would be awesome to see them all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then you've also taught some classes on Creative Bug, and I wonder how that experience compared. Um, it's different. Well. Their videos are much nicer than <laughs> Their videos are incredibly <laughs> gorgeous. Like, so. You know, four right. people in there taping me and microphones and, and sound people. And, and I even had a script, someone helping me with the script. So um, I'm, you know, on my own, I'm running around washing my tools between takes and things like that. So it's it's very different. Um, so they're glossier and, and prettier um, than my, my tutorials. But they're... Um, and I think they're great for like a, a, you know, I want to make one thing and I want to, you know, from beginning to end and a kind of an immediate gratification kind of experience. My, my courses are different in that they're teaching you a number of different processes. Um, not to mention in the classroom, like one day in, on my, in my e-courses, I do a, a virtual field trip. So I'm introducing a lot of other artists, ceramic artists, and sometimes other in other mediums. Um, and so we're looking at and talking about other people as well. So it's, it's, it's just much more in depth kind of experience. The creative bug, um, uh, courses are great for something like if you just want to do one thing, like make us, um, uh, learn how to carve stamps and, and print on something or make a ceramic mobile or something like that. Um, Nothing in ceramics takes one day, um, but if uh, the this creative bug uh, workshops are are definitely um, faster and and just much more uh, result oriented with a, a simpler project. Yeah, it sounds like it's more um, hobbyist in a way, and your classes are more for people who are either semi professional or or just um, you know are sort of all in when it comes to ceramics. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So that's different. Um, all right. Well, that's, I think that's helpful to me to, for people to know. And so I know, um, you just recently moved, you mentioned that you moved to the Sierra Nevada foothills. I've never been there, but I'm imagining it's a lot more rural than San Francisco. Um, and I just wondered, uh, what motivated you to move and was it like a little scary since you had this career already up and running that like leaving the city was going to somehow, you know, leave something behind? Um, well, I, you know, I had started to think about moving about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. Um, I, you know, I've been in San Francisco for 30 years and, um, I wanted to, I was looking for a change. The climate in San Francisco is starting to, is definitely shifting. I mean, I've been through a number of what's going on now. Um, there are booms or people being pushed out. I had survived a, a few of them actually living there and I just wasn't feeling part of the conversation there anymore. Um, I wasn't feeling connected to it. And I was just feeling like my time was finished um, there. And that 
I wanted another, just a different experience in life, um, living somewhere else. And so I had a little mental list of places that I was thinking about, um, all over the country, in fact. Um, and most of them were somewhat rural areas, um, aside from maybe Portland, Oregon, which is where all of us from San Francisco moved to. (laughs) But, um... But most of the places I was thinking of were actually not cities, and most of them um, had a strong um, com- ceramic communities, people who are into ceramics. But um, <clears throat> I um, was visiting my best friend from art school. She's a ceramic sculptor, and she runs an, a really uh, wonderful studio here. Um, I'm in Nevada city and the neighboring uh, city four miles away is grass Valley. It's a bigger population that she runs a great studio. They're called the artist studio in the foothills. Um, and, uh, we started talking and, um, she said, you know, I have this little cottage next door that I'm going to renovate. It was a garage with a little like office space upstairs. So I'm going to convert it into a living space. Why don't you move up here? And, um, started thinking about it and then I got terrified and didn't want to leave, so it was about, you know, a month. And then I thought, no, I'm going to do this. Um, some things happened and I just thought, no, it's the right time to do this. And, um, I said, let's do it. So, um, and we were able to renovate the spot, um, the little cottage into a live workspace. I've downsized on, um, not so much living space, but on studio space. And that's been a challenge. Um, I'm living in a forest, <laughs> surrounded by trees, which I wasn't sure how I would feel about that because I've always been thought of myself as an, as a a seaside type girl. Um, but, um, uh, the view outside my studio here is a forest full of beautiful trees and birds flying around the view outside. I had a gorgeous studio in San Francisco, but only inside the studio was gorgeous. Outside was lots of garbage, and it was just, um, I was right next to a very serious, super fun site. Uh, I'd been out there for 15 years. I was like, there were a lot of things telling me it was time to get out of there. Um, I'd just been there. I had put in my time, and it was time to, to, um, to to not be in that kind of environment anymore. And, um, uh, you know, I have been so welcomed here. I mean, I've already gotten, um, a couple of jobs and, um, the, it's a real, there's a real vibrant artist community up here. Um, obviously my best friend run who lives right next door to me runs an art center. So I've had a, um, I've had a really easy entry into, um, living up here, but just people have been very welcoming and like every time I say, I just moved here, people say, welcome. That's the first thing that comes out of my mouth. I'm like, that's so nice because you're resentful of the city girl, (laughs) you know? Yeah. That's just like sort of suspicious. Yeah. 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 No, everyone (laughs) says that to me. And, um, and you know, I'm, I'm in, you know, my mom used to always call me a homebody when I was a kid and I'm introverted, even though I love, I like to go out and be with people, but, um, I just love not having to worry about moving my car for parking tickets. And I, you know, I, I actually, I feel like, wow, this is actually really suits me. I didn't, I didn't realize how much it does suit me. It's living up, um, in a, such a rural setting. And, um, I also love to travel and adventure and be in different places. I kind of have always been able to make a home wherever I'm at. And I've just been really enjoying, um, <clears throat> 
making a home in this uh, little funny place and all the different places to dis, you know, discover and, and, and hike and, and go out and uh, explore. I just feel like I'm, I feel like I'm on an adventure, which just feels really nice in life, especially when, um, at, you know, I just turned 50 this year. I felt I'm starting to feel like, are there any more adventures? So um, I know that sounds kind of, of course there are more adventures, but I think as you get older, um, newness is not always um, so easy to feel. Yeah. And you made this conscious choice to just go for it. Yeah. You know, which is hard to do. Like, it's like hard to pack up and just be like, here we go. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The hardest part was parking, packing up my studio and my home. Um, and I think, you know, the biggest challenge has actually been trying to cram my studio into a much like pretty much half the space of what I had in the city. Um, so getting my studio appropriately set up has been a challenge and it's kind of halfway done. And I just decided to start working, even though it's still kind of a chaotic mess in there. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. You need the work in order to have the energy to deal with the mess, you know, that's how I would feel at least. Like I I just need to actually make something in order to feel like, all right, I'm re-energized and can face this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you. Um, all right. Well, I wanted to make sure that we had some time to talk about a few recommendations before um, we run out of time. So, um, but I, I read somewhere and this was a while back, so maybe uh, it's no longer the case, but that you don't leave home without a handkerchief. Oh God. (laughs) Wow. That was a long time ago, right? (laughs) It's true. You gosh, that's one of my little special secrets. Um, I do. I'm, it's like, I'm, you know, Hungarian and, and, you know, old world and we, I was given handkerchiefs and when I was a kid and I still carry one. And I, when I I went back to Japan and I had a show there in 2001 and they, the Japanese carry these beautiful little cloth, um, handkerchiefs with them all the time. And I was like, my people. And (laughs) (laughs) so, um, I have a huge collection, mostly of the Japanese, um, handkerchiefs because there's a great Japanese store in San Francisco that I, they started, they sold my favorite ones at, um, and I do. And you know, I, I, um, you know, when I travel, I'm always packing my suitcase and which handkerchiefs are going with me. They're great on planes when you want to wipe your hands or you're just mucky and you know, something happens. I have a dog that I take on walks and sometimes I need, you know, a handkerchief. Um, if my hands get dirty. So yeah, I love, I love them. And they, the more you use them, the softer they get. I have to say I'm married to somebody who also never leaves home without a handkerchief. And I never had a handkerchief in my life before I started, um, you know, dating him and then got married to him. And now whenever we're together, it's the best thing that he has this handkerchief because it comes in handy all the time. I'm like, oh, there's something on my glasses and like use it. So I have to say, I think it's a good habit to get into. Plus it's green. You know, um, we use cloth napkins kind of go along with that. So um, I support it. I think that's cool. Um, <laughs> I, I do not have a bat box of tissue in my house. All right. <laughs> I don't buy paper towels either. I don't buy paper towels. I use all cloth napkins and everything, but, um, also there's nothing nicer than, I mean, this is granted your handkerchief is clean, but if someone needs it or is crying and you pull out your clean, soft handkerchief and hand it to them, it's just such a nice, I could I always feel like, Oh, I have a handkerchief. I can help. <laughs> So. Yeah, 
and in <laughs> such a nice way. Yeah. So much nicer than giving someone a tissue. I love mm-hmm. it. Um, and there, you can often find tons of them at thrift stores, I feel like, you know, thrift stores and rummage sales and stuff because it's such an old thing and people just don't want them anymore. And, you know, they're like embroidered and they're pretty and they're, it's nice. And a lot of them have never been used. You know, they were like stored in somebody's, in tissue in somebody's closet for, you know, 45 years or whatever. And now they're at the rummage sale. So. Yeah. I think a lot of people think that, um, handkerchiefs can be, are dirty and unsanitary, but you're supposed to wash them. I mean, you know, I don't carry the same handkerchief. No, right. We wash it. I wash it and I have a bunch of them that I replace. Right the dirty one with. So yeah, they're always clean. I, I, if, you, if I hand you my handkerchief, it <laughs> good to know. Um, and I also wanted to talk about your sketchbook. Um, so I have a sketchbook. I don't, I definitely don't draw in it every day. I draw in it in a very practical way. Like I'm planning a project. And so I need to figure out what I want to do. And I kind of use it almost like a notepad in that way. Um, but it looks like maybe you have more of a daily or almost daily sketchbook practice. I do, you know, moving the transition of moving. Um, I took the past year off, um, before I moved, from ceramics, I had burnout and, um, I just needed a break. And then the moving itself was a huge interruption in my, in my making, um, schedule. So in January, I was just kind of busting at the seams and needing to start something. So I started a daily sketchbook practice. Um, though I've been keeping sketchbooks. I mean, I have probably a whole shelf full of sketchbooks that I've kept over the years. And sometimes I'm more, um, you know, vigilant about drawing in them and other times, um, less so, but and I plan things and I, you know, I make a lot of, um, I have some really weird drawings and things. I'm like, what was I thinking? <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but, um, I've been kind of more focused, um, since January. And I, um, I also was trying to push myself to draw, um, differently and in a different style than, um, my more illustrative, um, style that I've been working with, working on in that you see my ceramics. So, um, I've been drawing a lot of trees because I've been living in trees and they were, they're everywhere and, um, and kind of doing a more, um, they're not necessarily abstracted, but just different, more graphic style. Um, and it's been a really nice to kind of have it all documented in one, um, book and I can look through them. Some of them are, you know, I really like, and some of them are like, Oh my God, that's awful. Um, but, uh, it's nice to see the progression of them and the idea. And I've also been sharing them on my Instagram account. And I've also been documenting, um, native plants up here where I'm living, um, which is just my way of sort of getting used to this new environment that I'm living in. Um, and, different projects are, you know, I'm, I'm planning, I'm trying, you know, working on different projects based on, um, these studies that I've been doing. So sketchbooks are, you know, every artist is going to tell you to keep a sketchbook. I was trained to keep a sketchbook. They're just, they're key. If you're going to have a a serious art practice, um, and there you're, you know, the best place to, to work because no one's looking at it except for you, unless you want to share it. And Except, you know, right. Except if you share it on Instagram, <laughs> you can. I mean, you don't have, I mean, yes. And right. I'm doing that. I kind of have been doing that because I'm, I'm telling my students to do it. And I also think it's important for artists. Um, I'm an established artist to show that 
I make duds too, or that I struggle, or I start with a weird idea and I don't know where it's going to go and show people the progression of that. Um, and I think, um, as a, you know, if you're starting out as an artist and you're in, um, you see people, you, you look up to people or you see people when they've already kind of spent years, um, honing their craft and to see that you can be, um, you can have, have been established, but then you can start again within once you've been established and have to start at square one. And I think it's good to, to, to do that. And, and it's helpful to other people. Yeah. It's really helpful to me for sure. And, um, just to know that it doesn't come out fully formed, you know, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I think it's encouraging. And, um, and then, you know, you're drawing trees now. Trees were not something that you listed in your sort of, uh, vocabulary of imagery. Um, so maybe it will become, or maybe it won't, but, uh, it's a new, you know, subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. Um, and I also think that one of the threads I just wanted to mention that, um, we've touched on a bunch of different times is generosity. Um, okay. So both with the handkerchiefs, but also with, um, you know, with Lisa being generous in giving you advice and me advice with Misty Mon and being generous and sharing with you her course. So you could see how it was structured. There's just been, um, and with your friend being generous and offering to renovate, uh, the cottage next door for you to, to move to, but that, that feeling of giving and sharing and not guarding uh, what you know, uh, has really been influential for you, I think. Yeah, I couldn't, you know, um, I couldn't have gotten to where I've gotten without, um, people helping me along the way. And, um, it's, you know, I think there was a time for, you know, when you're trying to work and, and establish your voice and get going, it's okay to guard is not necessarily the right word, but to, to just sort of protect it until you feel comfortable and confident to share it. And once you feel that way, share it because it's, um, it's so gratifying. Um, you know, there was a time in my career where I was worried about knockoffs and things like that. I don't worry about that stuff anymore. I just, I've had it happen. It hasn't been the end of the world. It's been frustrating, um, but <clears throat> I'm usually off and running onto the next idea by the time that other thing is, you know, trying to happen. Um, and I just think that um, I've gotten so much from um, my e-courses and sharing with my students and, um, and in my own work and from other people and other artists helping me along um, that, uh, has just made it worthwhile. I mean, I love my career. I love being an artist. I love my community. I just feel like I made a lot of really good decisions, um, following this path and I, I have no regrets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good note to end on. Um, Diana, it's been just wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the Walshie Naps podcast. Thank you so much for uh, asking me to do this, Abby. It was such a, so much fun and, and great to talk to you. Oh, good. So where can we find Diana Fate online? So I have my personal website uh, for my ceramics, which is dianafate.com. That's D-I-A-N-A-F as in Frank, A-Y-T.com. And then I have um, on the dianafate.com uh, website, if you're interested in the Clayer e-courses, there is in the... Um, 
menu bar, the Clayer e-courses, and you can just click on that and it will take you to the, to the e-courses and their descriptions. Super. That sounds good. And there's a new one. The new one is starting fairly soon. The e-course, yes, it starts on May 18th. Okay. So May 18th, that's coming up. So people, if they're interested, can come and check that out, which would be great. Um, All right. Super. So you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg, and I invite you to visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. And remember, Creative Bug is offering Walshing Apps listeners a free month of online classes. Get access to their entire library for free. Just use the code NAPS, N-A-P-S, at checkout to get started. You'll be supporting this show at the same time. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.